Here's another inspiring message from Northside Community Church, Sydney. Well, we are in week two of a four-week series called Putting Things Right Where You Are. And the aim of this series really is to rethink social justice, to think about what it means as Christians to engage justly, to live justly in the world around us. Last week, Sam, our senior pastor who's off for the weekend with his family, kicked off the series asking why we should engage with social justice. And he raised some really good, really good points. Is social justice just something that's meant to be relegated to one end of the political spectrum. Um, And we said, no, it's not. It's something, justice and the justice of God, social justice is something that is beyond um, the political spectrum that we see in front of us. It's a whole other reality. It's something that's wider and broader and deeper. Um, It's about God driving history towards shalom, life as he intended it to be. So as Christians, our engagement with social justice is not just about, um, it's not just some lefty endeavour, it's not just about organisations going out and doing good and throwing money at organisations to live justly on our behalf, Um, it's not just about rallying and protesting, though a lot of that stuff is good. Um, Last week we said, what if you saw social justice as simply putting things right where you are? And I want to ask this week, what are the nuances of that? As we start to unpack that a bit more, what are the nuances of that? And what does it mean for our lives? You don't have to look very far to see that things in the world around us are not as they ought to be. Anyone can recognise that. Um, People are living on the streets. Companies rip off their workers. One estimate of the number of slaves in the world is 30 million There are more and more war-torn corners of the world. Kids go to school hungry. I'm sure a lot of us saw that, um, the documentary on Four Corners this week about the kids in detention in Northern Territory. Like, that is, is that life as it ought to be? No. There's something in us that just rages when we see that kind of thing, when we see injustice and come up against it. And as Christians, what ought our relationship to injustice be? What ought our relationship to the world around us be? Um, now, there are two levels of description when you're explaining something. One is, what, one is a definition, what something is. We've said that, that social justice is putting things right where you are. It's partnering with God to put things right. Um, but there's a deeper level of explanation, which is what something means, what it means for your life. And I want to suggest that what social justice means for us, what putting things right where you are means for our lives, is an alignment of our lives with the heart and purposes of God. God calls us into relationship with himself, not just for us, but in order that, as one writer put it, we should live lives of justice and righteousness and in so doing become a lamp through which God's light uh, should shine on the nations. God illuminates Jesus through our lives of justice and righteousness. There are something like 3,000 verses uh, on justice in the Bible. This is a, a picture from the Poverty and Justice Bible, and all the, all the verses on justice are highlighted in orange. Um, and I imagine that if you were to take all of those orange highlighted verses about poverty and justice out of the Bible, the picture of God that we see in the Bible would be completely incomplete. It wouldn't be an accurate picture of God. Now imagine if we take poverty, engagement with poverty and justice out of the lives of the church. I think that in the same way, the picture of God in the world that people see is in the same way incomplete. You know, people look at us as Christians, people look at the church to see what God is like. If we remove engagement with poverty and justice from our lives, 
The picture of God is as incomplete as it would be if you took these 3,000 verses out of the Bible. It's hugely important. And so justice, uh, putting things right, is actually a relational category. It can't be done in a vacuum. It can't be done in isolation. Justice is doing whatever is required to create, restore, and maintain right relationships, shalom, that God is driving history towards. Um, there was this great quote that Sam had last week about what shalom is. He said that it's the webbing, this is um, another writer, the webbing together of, of God, humans, and all creation in equity, fulfillment, and delight. It's universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs, in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed all under the arc of God's love. That's the vision. And it's the outworking of righteousness. Um, We often think of righteousness as being this internal category that just has to do with me and God. It's this internal state of affairs. But actually, moreover, righteousness is a state of affairs in which things line up as they ought to. They line up as God intends them to. So when we encounter things in our world that are broken and fractured, things that are not as they ought to be, our lives of righteousness that must find expression through relationships with others spill out through justice, through putting things right. Justice is bringing all things under the reign and rule of God just as he would want them to be put right. Is that making some sense? Now, this presupposes that we know what kind of God, uh, what kind of king our God is. Now, the kind of king you have determines what kind of kingdom you will have. If the king is good, the kingdom will be good. If the king is bad, then the kingdom will be bad. I like to think of this in terms of the Lion King. Uh, who's seen the Lion King? Yeah. yeah. All right. Up here we have, can anyone tell me the first one up the top, whose kingdom is this? Mufasa. Yeah, it's all right. You're allowed to have feedback. That's fine. Mufasa. And the bottom one, whose kingdom is this? Scar, that's it. So Mufasa is the good king, uh, and then his brother Scar tries to take over, and then when, and he's bad. He's, he's the bad guy in the movie. When he takes over, this bottom picture is what happens to the kingdom when there's a bad king, when there's an evil king. Things are not as they ought to be. The circle of life is broken. I like this. It's really helpful for me in thinking about the kingdom of God and how it reflects the king. Uh, the kingdom of Jesus, when things are lined up under his reign and his rule, it's a picture of shalom, the circle of life. Everything is in balance and as it ought to be. We have a good king whose kingdom is a good place of justice and righteousness. Everything lined up as it ought to be. When we know that our God is a just God, And that we have a just king. We know that life in his kingdom is one in which everyone is fed. Everyone is welcomed. Everyone is clothed. And as citizens of that kingdom, we have the responsibility to participate in bringing that about. In putting things right. Engaging with justice is how we live in the recognition that our God is king and we are citizens of that kingdom. And this alignment of our lives uh, with the heart and purposes of God has another name, doesn't it? We've spoken about this before. It's our worship. It's our fitting response to who God is. It's an appropriate acknowledgement of his kingship, the lining up of our heart and lives with who he is and what his purposes are. Worship, which finds expression, has to find expression through living justly, is always self-involving. You can't escape it. Worship and justice has to be self-involving because it's lining up your life with the heart and purposes of God. 
And so that's the big picture of justice and righteousness and the kingdom of God um, and worship, just in a snapshot. <laughs> there we go. There's, they've just painted the broad brushstroke big picture. In light of that, we're going to look at this passage that Jeff read for us. We read a snippet of it for us uh, from the Old Testament. And in it, God speaks to his people Israel um, through the prophet Isaiah about where his people are at in their relationship with him and what he wants from them when it comes to justice. Now, there's a lot that we can learn about God and what he seeks for us today from this passage. Um, we just read a few, uh, Jeff just read for us a few verses uh, from that passage, but we're going to sort of refer to the whole chapter. So if you've got your Bible with you, turn to Isaiah 58, keep your finger in it, uh, or keep it on your, on your iPhone screen, and we'll keep referring back to it. Um, here was the situation when Isaiah wrote this, when God spoke through Isaiah to speak to his people Israel. Um, the job of the prophets was to speak to God's people, to call them back into alignment with God's purposes when they wandered off track. That was the job of the prophets in the Old Testament. And Isaiah was one, one such prophet. Um, he was a really significant one. He's referred to by name 20 times in the New Testament. He's one of the big guys, one of the major prophets. Um, and he spoke to God's people to call them back into alignment with God's purposes. Um, in this particular chapter, he's writing to God's people who've just returned from exile in Babylon back to Jerusalem. And they sort of got this identity crisis going on, being like, who is God? Things, the glory days seem to have, the glory days have passed. What's going on? Why doesn't God seem to be blessing us? What's going on in our lives? They're having this whole like identity crisis and, and understanding what their relationship with God looks like in this world that doesn't really seem to make sense to them. So I think that there's a lot of resonance in that for us and the way that where we find ourselves in the world that often doesn't seem to make sense. And what Isaiah does is he applies his understanding of God's nature. He's the good king and the good kingdom of what it means to live lives that are aligned uh, to both the heart and purposes of God and what that means for bringing order and justice to moral chaos. When we get to chapter 58, it is clear that something is wrong. You see it right from the outset. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Uh, even just talking about a trumpet, it's a big deal. He wants everyone to know about this. This is not some small issue. This is a big, big issue across the community. He goes on, for day after day, they, this is the people of God, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near to them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you've not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? You see there in verse 3, they think they're doing all these religious things. They're doing all these expressions of worship, like fasting, as a way to try to get, get, get God's attention and pull down blessing from him. But they're saying, God, why haven't you blessed us? We're doing all the right things. We're going to church. We're serving. We're doing all the right kind of stuff. Why aren't you reciprocating? Why aren't you giving me my reward? Why aren't you giving me what I've earned, what I deserve? Because I've been doing all the externals of worship. And God says to them, verse 4 and 5, effectively, it's because the intention of your worship, your fasting, is incongruous with your conduct in the world. He says this, Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarrelling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sack, uh, sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? 
There's a misalignment, God is saying. Am I just about the showy externals of worship? Is that all I want from you? I'm not going to respond to the externals of worship when it's not coming through in your life, when it hasn't infused your heart. When I was in year 12, this is embarrassing and I cannot believe I'm sharing this with you guys. But anyway, I've begun. It's happening. I was going out with this boy from the football team, the rugby team from school when I was in year 12. And it came to our one year anniversary. I know. Woo! It came to our one year anniversary. And in my infinite wisdom as a 17 year old, I thought that it would be a great idea to buy uh, myself and this rugby prop um, uh, a ticket to go and take a ballroom dancing class. <laughs> Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Genius, genius, perfect. Anyway, so we went off to this class, took this ballroom dancing class, and then one afternoon we're practising our dance moves in his parents' lounge room, as you do when you're 17 and you're dating one of the rugby props. Anyway, I don't even know how that happened. So there we are, we're practising our dance moves. And you know that um, ballet move when the guy ballerina lifts up the girl ballerina by the waist? I don't know what it's called. Maybe it's called a lift, who knows. Anyway, so he didn't... Uh, anyway, so went for the lift, but miscalculated the height of the ceiling slightly. And, um, yes, yes, my friends, yes. And lifts me into the ceiling. Now, this is like a solid, solid ceiling, and up I went. Now, you can imagine that that is kind of like the opposite of diving into a pool and landing on your head. Your spine doesn't really have anywhere to go, but... Yeah, so I, needless to say, I was not very happy. Thankfully, my spine did not break, my neck did not break, nothing bad happened. I was not very happy, and my parents were not very happy because they then had to foot all the chiropractic bills. So um, that was my... Um, anyway, I suppose that's what happens when you buy a ticket to a, rug, a, um, a ballroom dancing class for someone who is into rugby. But anyway... That was my experience with misalignment in my back. There's the little segue. What I learned through my chiropractic experiences was that in your back, and Shannon and um, Brendan, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, in your back, I hope my medical knowledge is not great, but <laughs> in your back you've got your spinal cord, all the nerves run up and down, and that's required to flow freely in order for your body to operate properly. Now, if there's a misalignment in your back, which is what happened when I got driven into the ceiling is that your vertebrae get out of alignment like this and what happens is that the nerves cannot flow as freely as they might otherwise for your body to operate properly. Now what happens for us, um, if justice and righteousness are not flowing freely out of our lives, if we're not living lives um, that live out the justice of God in the world, we need to ask ourselves if there is a misalignment somewhere in our relationship with God. We need to examine our hearts, examine our lives to see where there might be a misalignment. And I have to say that this has been so challenging for me and I am examining my life along with you all um, and asking myself this question because this is not happening in my life uh, as much as it ought to be. God says to his people Israel here, you know, the problem's not on my end. You know, I want to see this happening. I want to be flowing through you. I want to be blessing you. Um, the problem is not on my end. The problem is a misalignment on your end. And actually, he says, the problem is that your worship is hollow and self-serving. In their fasting, the people would gather and they would give this impression of piety, but it was just a means of trying to draw God's attention to themselves. Their worship had become instrumental. It was a means to an end. God had become useful for their advantage the purpose of their worship had been to gain advantage from God, to extract blessing from him for themselves rather than seeking to be a blessing to other people through their worship. They thought that God ought to bless them in reward for their piety, 
not realizing that God's blessing can't be obtained by trying to wrangle it, wrangle it from him by doing the right thing. You know, it's the kind of attitude that says, oh, I didn't get much out of worship today. I didn't get much out of church today. I went to church. Why didn't God bless me with giving me a good experience? You know, only twice in the Old Testament does God command his people to fast, but hundreds of times he commands his people to treat others and especially those who are weaker with respect and with justice and with kindness. He wants the heart alignment more than he wants the external stuff of worship, of what looks like worship. And this is the kicker. This is what got me. When the Israelites denied themselves, it wasn't for the sake of others, it was for their sake. Their worship had become self-indulgent. They were cranky when God didn't deliver for them because their relationship with him had become all about them. We can tell this because their piety, their worship hadn't affected their relationships with other people. They're still quarrelling. They're still hitting each other. They're doing whatever they please. They're turning away from their own families. Their attempts at worship and righteousness are actually selfish and oppressive. The worship of God had not infused their hearts. It was constrained to the surface as a way to try to manipulate God to give them what they wanted. God's intention is that our relationship with him affects our relationship with other people. If we're concerned with right relationship with God, then we must be concerned with right relationship with the world around us. And so to live a hollow relationship, um, a hollow worship of God that's all about you, is actually to insulate yourself from his heart and purposes in the world. And it's so easy to do this on the lower North Shore. We live the good life, Right? We live the good life. We don't need other people. We're taught to be independent and to rely on ourselves, to look like we have it all together, that we don't need to be interconnected. Like our lives and our worship of God doesn't have to have anything to do with anybody else. This world, and particularly our area, teaches us to insulate. But the life that God calls us to, the kingdom that we are citizens of, as opposed to this world that we live in, is one of deep interconnected relationships, a beautiful web of connection in which everyone's needs are met that flows out of relationship with God. If you're not seeing your relationships with others as inextricably linked with your relationship with God, if you sense that you have insulated yourself from his heart and his purposes, it might be worth asking yourself this morning whether you've fallen into the trap of seeing your relationship with God as something that's just between you and him, something that's just about what he can do for you, not what he can do through you for others. How many times do we see a disturbing image of poverty and turn away? It's uncomfortable, right? How many times do we see someone sleeping on the streets and turn away? Do we hear a story of a neighbour in need and turn away instead of turning towards, moving towards? We close our eyes, we pretend it doesn't exist and that it's not happening. We insulate, we disconnect, we depersonalise, thinking that the big organisations will take care of it. We avoid being personally connected, being moved, being affected, being willing Hollow worship that's about you and God only keeps you on the sidelines of God's work in this world. 
And you know what? Getting off the sidelines and into the game is always costly. It's going to cost us. The passage talks about spending ourselves on behalf of the needy, on behalf of the poor, the hungry. It's giving ourselves away. It's choosing to see people as made in God's image, as just as important and precious as we are. It's giving up control. It's all very safe and controllable on the sidelines. Let me tell you, we know that. And choosing instead availability and vulnerability, interconnectedness. It's choosing to live interconnected with others, life as God designed it to be lived, life in right relationship under God, everything brought into alignment. This is what it is. Is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked, to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then you will, your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. He will, you will cry for help and he will say, here am I. Right relationship with God must mean putting things right in the world around us. It's really hard when this cuts across our own agendas and cuts across our own desire for control and cuts across enjoying the safe, easy margin. This, if I enter into this, if I choose to, to live this out, this is a complete disruption of my way of life, to choose to see the world around me as, as an outflowing of my relationship with God, my engagement with the world around me, that completely reorients and realigns the way that I live. It, bring, it realigns my life under the heart and the purposes and the reign of God. Can I ask you, what wrecks you? What breaks your heart when you see it around you in everyday life? What wrecks you? Can I just say, don't insulate yourself from what wrecks you? Because just maybe God will use that, that feeling, that emotion, that frustration, that anger, that brokenheartedness to propel you forward to put it right. Have you accepted the status quo? Have you accepted the world around you for what it is? Have you accepted injustice as just the way things are? But no, this is not the way that things are supposed to be. If you have accepted the status quo, if you've accepted injustice, can I ask you to take another look at your God? Sam said last week that when we see our resources as mine, I fail to give them away to put things right. And I wonder if what lies beneath that is that we fail to trust that if I give them away, God will provide for me. That I won't be looked after if I step off the sideline and get into the game and spend myself on behalf of the poor and the vulnerable. That maybe he'll use my surrender for his own self-interest. Spending ourselves on behalf of others does not mean that we end up lacking. It is in fact the way that we end up blessed and satisfied. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. 
and will strengthen your frame. You'll be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. What a beautiful picture. One writer said that the surrender of one's self-interest into the care of the creator is the most personally beneficial thing one can do. What we believe of God has enormous implications for how we engage with his heart and purposes in the world. Let me ask you, what's your king like? Is he the kind of king who has a good kingdom like Mufasa? What is Jesus like, this Lord of history whose plan is to shine a light, shalom, through our lives of justice to put things right. He's a king who's fair. He's a king who's good. He's a king who is just and sovereign and loving, who provides and is merciful. He's a king who looks on the brokenness of this world and whose heart breaks. He's not a king who sits up in heaven and does nothing about it. He chose to come himself to experience the pain of this world, to stand in solidarity, to experience the worst of human experience, even death on a cross, He came to inaugurate the presence of the future. Sounds a little sci-fi, I know. (laughs) He did. He came to inaugurate the presence of the future. One day, all pain will be gone. There will be no more suffering and no more pain. And when our King Jesus walked this earth, he brought with him the presence of that future kingdom, the place where he reigns and where everything lines up as it's intended to under his good and just reign. His kingdom is not fully here yet, but make no mistake that it is here. And slowly and quietly it advances as the people of the kingdom put things right where they are, making this broken and messed up world line up with the good and equitable reign of our King Jesus. Shalom is his vision, and if you call on the name of Jesus... You are a citizen of the kingdom of God and your life is about something so much bigger than you. You've been recruited into his mission to put things right. As he extends his kingdom, as he puts things right, we get to participate with him fashioning foretastes of heaven, foretastes of this kingdom that's to come, whispers of a beautiful reality that are beyond what we can see, the presence of the future. We get to live deep and beautiful and rich lives that flow out of alignment with God and a knowledge of what his kingdom is like. We get to live self-forgetful lives that look outward, lives of self-denial for others, not for ourselves. It's a call to a whole new way of life, a whole realignment under the heart and purposes of God. It's a whole new heart. So what is justice? Justice is the right expression of our worship of God, bringing our whole lives under his good reign. It's partnering with him as he brings the future to the present, ushering in his kingdom. It's the realignment of our lives with his heart and purposes. We're to point people to what life in his kingdom looks like. In the kingdom, all is just and fair and equitable. All are cared for and fed and welcomed. And when people see glimpses of that kingdom, people are leveraged toward God. They see God in that. You know the pain that you feel when someone you love is breaking apart, when someone you love feels deep, deep pain and you can't do anything to make it better? 
My fear is that we have a God who sees and feels and has experienced the pain of our world, who feels it more deeply than we could ever feel. And is so willing to put it right, but has a people who have chosen to insulate themselves from his purposes so that when they see, they look away. God has tied his name, his reputation, his activity to his people. We are his chosen instrument. He chooses to move through us. But aren't we on the sidelines so much of the time? The heart of God cries out for justice. The purposes of God are set towards justice. The will of God is to move his people into action, to put things right under his good and just rule. But we are so determined to insulate ourselves from the pain of the world and from the heart of God, and so we stay on the sidelines. If justice is not flowing from your life like it is not from mine as it should, would you ask yourself where the misalignment is? Is it that your relationship with God has become just about you and him? And you've forgotten that relationship with God can never be separated out from your relationship with the world around you, your relationship with other people? Is it that you just can't bear to engage with the pain of the world for fear that it will overwhelm you? What's going on? Where is that misalignment for you? Would you ask God to show that to you? Let me ask you, what is one thing you can look at this week And instead of looking away, let it move your heart. Let your heart move you into action. I want to leave you with the words of one writer, Sarah Bessie. And she says this, There are times in our lives when you want to believe we'd better open our minds and our hearts to things that make us uncomfortable. In fact, I think that a lot of good Christians just don't listen to or hear anything that might be difficult or complex or heartbreaking. They go through life with their fingers in their ears and their eyes screwed up tight against anything that might challenge them. Indeed, I've been thinking a lot lately about the importance of listening to the stories that make us uncomfortable and challenge our peace. Just because something is terrible to learn, it doesn't mean I need to guard against it. It doesn't have to be pleasant. I'll know sometimes the things that bring compassion and wisdom and wholeness into our lives are the very things that break our hearts or make us angry and challenge us. Even in the face of terrible and terrifying things, I want to open myself to the influences that will help make me whole and holy. I want to open wide the gates of my heart and my mind to the influences that bring life and light, goodness to me and holiness to me. I want to fill my heart with those things because then when I encounter the terrible and the terrifying, my true life will brim over into true words and deeds that bring life. Let me pray. Well, thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to find out more about Northside, visit northsidechurch.org.au.